Well, John had mentioned our beliefs. One of our core beliefs, of course, is the the uh, sufficiency of God's Word, the Bible. Um, and our one of the ways we recognize that is that uh, each Sunday um, we uh, read God's Word because um, we believe in our hearts that uh, though the Holy Spirit, uh, in God's wisdom, gives gifts throughout the church, some of those are in teaching and preaching and uh, and pastoring and shepherding. But at the same time, too, we also believe that in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word can stand on its own. So this is part of that recognition. The passage this morning is in Acts chapter 5. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 12 through 16. If you don't have your Bible with you this morning, the Iraq Bibles there are the black ones. Uh, you can find this passage on page 913. So again, it's Acts 5, uh, verses 12 through 16. Those of you that know me, uh, I don't see Jesus' name here or the love of God mentioned anywhere, so I think I can pull the reading off here this morning. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Good morning, church. Thank you, Eric, Catherine, for, and team for leading us into God's presence this morning. It's just good to begin to sense what he is doing. And actually, that began earlier. I know I was up early just sensing God's presence was here. And we got to come into an experience with him today. And that continued through our prayer gathering this morning. And just looking outside, man, I don't know. I, I, I've got this love-hate relationship with this time of year. Anyone relate to that? It's like the buds start to just start to emerge, the new shoots start to push through, and then winter comes and slams it with snow and ice. And we, we almost got stranded last Sunday night. I don't know how many were trying to get back onto a hill somewhere. And um, that was, that was a, a fun adventure for sure. We know that we know who wins the war, but it seems that battle after battle, winter is winning, but we know spring will ultimately prevail. Although this time of year, it feels like it needs a little bit of faith to believe that, even though our experience would prove that the days will get warmer, the buds will open, the magnolias will emerge, the grass will grow, seeds sown will produce a harvest, it just seems the way that God has made it. And without the winter, without that turmoil and that battle, maybe those warm spring days wouldn't be as refreshing. We need the contrast often to sense the rhythms of what God is even doing. And I think he's put so much into nature. I think it's evident from 
our experience, let alone from His Word. He's put so much into nature and His creation that reminds us of the spiritual truth of growth, of life, of the title of this sermon, which is one of our core convictions, Healthy Things Grow and Multiply. Again, we just know that to be true, but we see it again and again throughout His Word and the story of His people. You realize that before, before God ever created man and woman, He planted a garden. That was their dwelling place. That was the picture of God's presence with His people. A garden. If you don't have a green thumb... Don't feel bad, but I believe that's possible for everyone because God has instilled something in us to be a part of the earth. It's where we're from and to be a part of the beauty of new shoots, deep roots, and diverse fruit. And the whole story, the whole story of God's creation and then redemption of his people runs from garden to garden. The picture we have in Revelation of the garden within now a city with the multitudes dwelling and worshiping the king with the trees of life on the sides of the river. So we are living between the gardens and in the midst of the winter seasons of life like the one we're in now and we're hoping ends and we see signs of it ending. We need reminders that God is still at work. God is still doing the work of of growth and of life. Furthermore, His people, the journey of His people, Israel was chosen and they were ultimately a planting people. And much of their story revolved around the promised land, that fertile piece of land that has been in conflict for millennia. But it was revolved around the, the land of growth, the land of health, the land flowing with Milk and honey, it's described in the Old Testament. There are planting people. When Jesus came, many of his parables, his analogies related to an agricultural system that people knew so well sometimes stretches us to understand. But the growing, the planting, the sowing. He called God the Father the Lord of the harvest. And he he called his followers to look into the fields which were white for the harvest The lost in their midst were ready to come into the kingdom, to come and be planted, to be rooted. He told the story of how it's God who multiplies. It's God who takes the seeds and and helps them grow to multiplication 30, 60, 100 fold. We may be entrusted seeds of God's word to sow, but he's the one that grows and multiplies. Paul picks up that imagery in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 7. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. And really, on and on we could go through God's word with this imagery. And throughout Acts, as we've been studying, we see this growth and this multiplication of the early church. They were experiencing the hundred fold harvest that Jesus spoke of. The hundredfold harvest from the 120 that gathered in fear in that upper room and within, within, well, within a night, 
Thousands were added to their number. Within a few short months, the number grew to over 10,000. And within a few short years, tens of thousands. The church was experiencing that hundredfold harvest right in their very midst from Jerusalem and then toward the ends of the earth as the gospel spread like ripples. Healthy things grow and multiply. And we see that throughout God's story. We see that as the way of His creation And we know it not just from the garden and from plants, but through the animal kingdom and through our own lives. Healthy things grow and they multiply. And so here again, a couple of these verses that Craig read for us. Verse 12 of Acts 5. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Verse 16. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. So we see this spreading out and bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. When we read, read, read passages like this and we, I think rightly, if we look at our own experience, we ask the question, why isn't this happening today? Where is this in our midst today? And I would argue that in many places in our world, it is happening. The healthy church is growing and multiplying, and the stories are amazing and radical. And so with more of a specific question to our context, we might say, why isn't this happening in Seattle? Or in Redmond? Or on Union Hill? If healthy things grow and multiply... And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Where is that in us? And whether the us is Union Hill Church, the greater alliance family in our region or across the country, or whether the us is simply the evangelical church in this nation, if healthy things grow and multiply, what's the alternative? Jesus said with that same kind of imagery in Matthew seven seventeen, it was toward the end of his famous Sermon on the Mount. He said, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus didn't mince words. Now, to be sure, there are seasons, ones that God has put into place and others that we probably walk into on our own. But there's seasons, and I think even especially this season, we're reminded that branches can look very dead, and it seems that overnight the buds emerge and the flowers come, and we're reminded that the winter is over. We know that roots are growing deeply beneath the surface and you can't see it. And there are seasons of waiting and longing. And some of those seasons are longer than just a few months. Some of you are in, you would probably describe it, winter type season for years. And just wondering if the dead branches are ready to be cut and thrown into the fire or whether the buds are ready to emerge. And so to be true, there are seasons. And yes, as we look at Acts, we 
are reminded again, this is a description of the work that the Spirit was doing in a people at the very beginning of the planting of the church after the redemption and the work of Jesus Christ on earth. It's a description, not a prescription. It's a description of what God was doing in their midst. And yet to say that this wasn't, at least from the perspective of Luke, who's writing this letter, this was all he knew and all they knew. This is what the normal Christian life looked like. Great famous preacher and author Martin Lloyd-Jones describes the early church in Acts as the genuine church. They're the model and the picture for what it looks like, but it is still description. And so much of this story is, is not something that we can prescribe for the church today. And I'm not arguing that we should expect thousands to be added to the number of the church in our context in a single afternoon or following a single inspiring sermon. I don't believe that's going to happen today. Should we have faith for it to happen? Should we have longing and hunger and thirst? We know that this was a unique time in history and that the church primarily multiplied through the Jewish community. God was already preparing hearts, tilling up the soil of those hard hearts to receive the seed of the word and to germinate. We know God was at work in a special way. We realize that Paul, as he goes, he doesn't see the same multiplication, but he does see a harvest. And so knowing that our culture and our context is very different, and not walking in a guilt or stirring up as if we can move the work of the Spirit. But where is the longing of the heart and the faith to believe that verse 14 could even be true in our midst? That may not be thousands coming to Christ in a single day, but if verse 14 is true in our midst and there's a hunger for it more than ever, New believers were coming to put their faith in Christ and being added to the church. That's not just about a Union Hill church. That's about Christ's church in a region or in a nation. Where's that hunger and thirst that in our day we could see verse 14 be true more than ever? More than ever, Lord. There's been a prayer that I think has followed that kind of language for us for a number of years now. The more Lord prayer. They're simple prayers. But do they reflect a deep and growing heart in the ways of the Lord? More Lord. This is not enough. You don't have enough of me. I don't think I have enough of you as if he's withholding from us. More, Lord, more than ever, Lord. Help us grow deep that we might become like a greenhouse for those that you want to plant in our midst, those that you are saving in our day. As we come to Acts again and again and we see this picture of the healthy church No doubt this church is healthy. It is growing and multiplying. That's what Jesus said. By their fruit, you will recognize. This church is bearing fruit. 
working with the Spirit. It's evident that they are a healthy church. So then we ask, Lord, what, what did they do? And even more importantly, who were they? And then as we bring it to our application, is there something that must change in us? And knowing I can't change the person sitting next to me, what must change in me? And so we approach this passage both with praise and honor to Christ and to the Holy Spirit who did this work in one, at one, in one day, at one time, in one season, and we're inspired and we're encouraged and we pray with this longing of, Lord, why not today in our midst? But we see, let me draw out three things, because the healthy church, the healthy growing church is marked by many things. I'll draw out three, no surprise, from this passage. Humility, hunger, and healing. Great fear had just swept through the church. That's a tough passage, that first part of Acts 5. We addressed it a couple weeks ago. It seems that God's wrath and God's judgment just fell after all that had been falling on the church was grace and mercy and power. It seemed jolting and jarring that God's wrath would fall. Ananias and Sapphira put to death. Their hypocrisy exposed and rooted out of the early church. And great fear swept through the church. Certainly part of that fear was wonder and honor. That God's power was so real. And certainly part of that fear was a self-reflective fear. And rightly, anyone that would address that passage and realize, even under the grace of Jesus Christ, God's wrath is true. His holiness has not changed. And the hypocrisy within this heart, how different is it than Ananias and Sapphira? How far away am I from the same heart that tries to appear better than I am? Who takes credit or receives praise that is unearned and undeserved? Or who even deceives or lies? So certainly part of the great fear probably swept through with that personal application of, Lord, if you search me, you're going to find the same. And it led to a repentance and to a growing worship within the church. We ended two weeks ago with these prayers. Lord, remind us of your holiness. Show us our hypocrisy and teach us humility. And so we continue with that same heart to grow in humility. And everything we have, everything we are has come from you. It is yours, Lord, as we seek to be your stewards. I think for those that were clearly living out of that posture, the apostles, many within the church, that posture of humility that all we have is from you, Lord, every breath and every day is yours, and they lived that way, I still believe that the reminder of his holiness with what happened with Ananias and Sapphira was a timely, sobering reminder. It's very easy to move from a place of humility to a place of self-sufficiency. And certainly in a time when 
people were getting radically saved, transformed, healed, and the church was blowing up. How easy would it have been to move from humility to look at us? Everything we're doing and everything we're touching and we preach and they get saved and the church is blowing up. And God reminded them that all they had was from Christ. And any kind of growth and multiplication was through the work and the power of the Spirit. And that's the place and the posture they needed to remain in. May that always be true of His church. We are not perfect. We are being perfected. We're not good. We're under God's grace. And hypocrisy and pride lurks just beneath the surface at all times, both within this heart and within His people. Assumption, presumption, flat-out ignorance, they're perpetual. They're so frustrating. They're so frustrating because we often only see them clearly in the rear-view mirror when we realize our pride and our ignorance. And so, Lord, help us. I'm continually inspired by the prayer of the very first Alliance believers who gathered in New York City in 1881. A.B. Simpson left the Presbyterian Church in a pretty influential position in New York City. His career, if you want to call it that, was on the rise. Crowds were coming to hear him preach, a very gifted communicator, and he stepped away in order to preach to the masses, the lost and the immigrants who were coming flooding into New York City. And he, made, he put out a call in the newspaper to come and to gather, and many did, to pray for the lost and the immigrants. And then he invited all those who were there, that were there to a special prayer meeting to give their lives fully in devotion to reaching the lost in their city for Jesus Christ in their day. And six came that night. And their prayer was... Lord, thank you that we are few and that we are weak because if you choose to use us in any mighty way for your kingdom, you will have all of the glory because in this, in this band of believers, we've got nothing. We need all of you. It reminds us of the, the Gideon story with his army that God just whittled down who do you need but me? Don't go into battle thinking you've got this one sewn up. But I'll show you how powerful I am. True humility. How much of our daily life and our ministry do we really need God for? Oh, there's the right answer to that. You know it. Jesus said a Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if he were not present and empowering us, would anything be different in our life today? Would we even notice? Jesus said at the beginning of that famous sermon that I referenced earlier, Matthew chapter 5, let me read a few of these that are commonly known as the Beatitudes. He said, the first one, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, 
they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. He didn't start with, blessed are the wise, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the influential. Striking, he was always. He goes right after the heart of humility that recognizes who they are, who they aren't, and their great need of something more. That leads to to the fourth beatitude, which is my second point, hunger. The early church was hungry. They were a healthy church because they were a hungry church. Verse 6, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Humility leads to hunger. When you know how poor you are, and he says poor in spirit, heard this translated as spiritual bankruptcy. The, I've got nothing. I am empty. I've got nothing to bring to a holy God that amounts to anything. I am desperate for everything. That poor in spirit posture of humility. When you know You are poor in spirit. You become desperate and dependent for another, for a savior, for a deliverer, for a healer, for a king. When you mourn, blessed are those who mourn. I think it's speaking to more than just the mourning that comes from earthly loss and sorrow, though that is true. There is comfort in him and him alone. But when you mourn that neither your life nor this world is what it should be, you become hungry. You long for a filling. And when you're humble and you're hungry, and there's only one source that brings that satisfaction, that brings that fulfilling. That's what Jesus is saying. In me is that satisfaction. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because later he will say, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Everything else will take care of itself. You will be filled. There's a reason that the gospel seems to flourish amongst the poor and the marginalized. It's been true for millennia. It doesn't come with greater power. The gospel is not different. It is unchanged. But for those who are truly hungry and thirsty, for those that are living in a place of survival, when life is about survival, and a message of not just hope and security, but a message of life and life to the full comes... And your hunger and your thirst can be satisfied? For those that know that this world doesn't offer that, the gospel can flourish and spread. And it does. And we've seen that. Jesus offers not just rescue, but life and life to the full. 
And perhaps it's not that we've forgotten what it means to hunger and thirst. Perhaps it's we've never known. Are we not gluttons and drunkards being satiated by the things of this world? The comforts and the securities that this world offers. You can be rich, and we've certainly contextualized that. We are rich in many ways. You can be rich and come to put your full trust and dependence into Jesus Christ and to follow him. But Jesus says it's exceptionally hard. It is hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom. And he uses a picture. It's easier for what? To go through the eye of a needle. It's exceptionally hard. That's what he's saying. Why is that? Why did that rich man walk away sad? And is it possible that we very much like the idea of following Jesus and yet we never truly have? The rich, if you've never hungered and thirsted, if there's never anything that you truly need, how desperate are you for another, for another source, for another feeling? I was talking with a friend down at Gold's Gym. A friend, acquaintance. He said, I don't even know what we were talking about. Something just bantering probably. But he said, if, if, if I want something in life, I go get it. It's always been that way. I just, I just go get it, I take it, I work for it. That's the American way, isn't it? It's also a privilege. It's also pride. But this is the repeated mantra that we are under in this country. We grow up in it, inundated by it. There's nothing you can't attain if you don't work for it. There's nothing outside of your grasp that you can't Reach for and attain. And if that's the posture and that's the mantra that we live by, then it's within our ability and our grasp to achieve our own fullness and satisfaction. Why would we hunger and thirst for another? Another source of filling, a savior, a deliverer. Why would we want a king to bow to and worship? What do we need to be delivered from and rescued from? until we know our, we are poor in spirit, until we truly mourn, and until we find meekness, we will be walking away from Jesus, sad at the idea of what it could be, but satisfied nonetheless by what we are creating in our own life. When Jesus says in that same sermon, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, you cannot serve two masters, we tend to prove by our very lives that we don't believe him. We live for this world, not for the one to come. Inspired by the Smith family we heard from last week, putting this call into action. Selling all and moving to serve the poor in Zimbabwe. By the way, just received the testimony this week that they were issued their three-year visa. 
They were praying for God's timeline and for him to open doors. And they've heard from the, 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 the government of Zimbabwe that this is the first visa issued to a Christian couple coming to serve and to minister in 20 years. They said, the government is changing things, they're shifting. Let's go for it and let's say who we are and why we're there. We could apply for a farming visa, which they have equipping to do, but let's say who we are and why we're going. And the government said yes. That's not a movement of God's timing because when they started this process, that was closed to them. Like Barnabas a few years before the Smith family, willing to sell all to give life to the ministry of the gospel wherever it might take them. Are we supposed to say yes to the same call? Are we supposed to do the same thing? If you're like me, you have days where that sounds very attractive. But they're few and far between. Maybe we should say yes to smaller steps. It's also the testimony of the Smiths. We just continued to say yes to the opportunities that came. That's, when you look back on it, that's the journey. Each step was another one. Might we actually start tithing? Yes, I use the T word. Might we actually start serving the poor and marginalized right in our own midst and community? Might we start fasting? When Jesus said, when you fast, it was an expectation. I think we've forgotten what it even feels like to be hungry. Maybe we start with smaller steps. Would we be so bold to pray, Lord, teach me to hunger and thirst for more of you? See, those are the, the simple, bold kind of prayers like, Lord, teach me humility. Lord, teach me patience. Don't pray those lightly. Lord, teach me to hunger and thirst for you because how, how does hunger and thirst grow except for loss, pain, suffering, brokenness, the oppression of addiction? How do we become hungry and thirsty for deliverance, for a savior, for a healer, for someone more and greater? And so maybe we pray, teach us to hunger and thirst, Jesus, and if possible, spare us from pain and loss and sickness and addiction. But he didn't spare the apostles. He didn't spare Peter and John and the rest. Right at the end of this chapter, verse 40, they're arrested again, thrown in prison again. An angel comes and delivers them. This is a foretaste of where where we're going. This time, they're not only just threatened and sent away, they're threatened and beaten. One of the translations is they were flogged. They were beaten severely. And here's how they leave. Verse 41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They knew a hunger for Christ and his righteousness, his kingdom and his power that we do not know. Teach us, Lord. 
The early church, and I would argue the healthy church, is marked by humility, which should lead to hunger, and it's marked by healing. Look at the last four words of verse 16. They were all healed. In humility, they recognized their need. In hunger, they came to Jesus. By grace and faith, they received healing. Every one, all who came to Jesus, believing in Him as the source of wholeness, of healing, found healing. And it's true today. We are living in the same age with the same risen and ascended Lord. The same work on the cross bears the same significance. It matters not that we are removed 2,000 years. We are the same church in the same inheritance. All who come believing in Jesus, who look to Him, will be healed. It's the promise of Scripture. Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus came, by His stripes you will be healed. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 15 and following, this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes, they have cl- their, their eyes are closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. It's his promise. Turn to me, I will heal. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Jesus is not only our Savior and our sanctifier, he is our healer. And yet far more important eternally than our physical healing is our spiritual healing. And that's his promise. His promise and his yes is always for spiritual healing. When the paralytic was brought to Jesus by those friends of his who had to dig through the roof and lay him down and there was a great crowd and he looked, how could he not see him? And he said, son, your sins are forgiven. That's not why they had come. And everyone starts to grumble and question who is this man who can forgive sins. They already were seeing the power uh, in him or through him to heal. And he says, I know what you're thinking. But so that you know, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. Rise up and walk. I have the authority for that healing too. Physical healings are a sign. Miracles are a sign pointing to something greater and someone greater. All who come to Jesus for healing are healed. By his stripes, you are healed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we will all die, that promise is true also, and we will be raised imperishable for those that are in Christ. We will be given eternal bodies. And from God's eternal perspective, it is done, it is accomplished, it is finished So we come to Jesus and he says, you are healed. By my stripes, you are healed. We will all need to wait for the fullness of that healing. 
So the yes for all may feel like a not yet, not in fullness. And whether he chooses to touch physically and heal, and I know there's actually many in this room who have that testimony. God has healed me physically after I sought him. And maybe it's completely, maybe it's sufficiently. The answer is yes, though it may feel like a not yet. And I'm praying, you've heard me preach a number of times already in this series because we continue to see the healing power of God through his people and in the church. I pray that we would become a people who are more surprised when God says what feels like a no to us. No, I will not heal you physically now. But I believe we're still a people who are more surprised when he says yes to that prayer. The testimony of Scripture is the exception is God saying, not yet. That's the exception. Are we living in a day where now those have flipped? Where the exception is him him saying yes? I can't answer that. By our experience, but I don't like reasoning through experience. God can answer that. All I know is we are in the same church with the same spirit, with the same Savior, with the same healer who has the same desire to heal and is still saying, yes, it is done. All in me is all done. You come to me, you are healed. May we not get, and if, this, if you are in a place of desperately needing a physical touch, I'm just calling you again to fix your eyes on Christ, the healer of your soul and your eternal life. That is a yes now, every time. All who come to me, all who look to me will be saved, healed, delivered. That's his promise. I believe a healthy church is always marked by healing. But it begins with this belief that Christ is our healer. A healthy church is marked by this faith and this expectation. And I believe it becomes marked by true healing, wholeness and wellness. But I also believe that there's more, as you're hearing, than just this physical healing. And even in this passage, not just the physically sick were coming, but it says those with unclean spirits. That was a large category for a lot of misunderstood ailments emotionally, mentally. We have a lot of different terms today. But I believe we probably, as much as anything in our culture, need a deliverance and a healing mentally, emotionally, from either bondage or oppression that we are under. So many are living under that bondage, are living under that oppression. All who came were healed. All who came. It was a very interesting thing. I have to touch on it, don't I? Peter's shadow. 
that just if Peter's shadow, although we're not told that they were healed when Peter's shadow came upon them, it seems that that's what's being described. A very amazing thing. But it does remind us of the woman who reached out to touch the corner of Jesus' robe in the midst of the crowd, doesn't it? It was not her faith that healed her. It was Jesus and the power of God. But she came in faith, knowing that simply to be in his presence was enough. And that seems to be what's happening here. I don't know how much superstition or or I don't know what was going on. But the power of God was present to heal. And there is something very interesting about that word shadow. It's used in Matthew 17 where when Peter and James and John are with Jesus on the mountain and the bright cloud comes and overshadows them. It's the same word. They are enveloped in the presence of God. It's the same word that's used in Luke 1, 35, when the angel came and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. See, there's a power in the presence of God and it was with Peter and it was with the apostles and people were healed and delivered by Jesus, not by Peter's shadow but the power and presence of God was overshadowing them. And it's hard not to think that we need that same overshadowing now. Peter's shadow isn't here, but the presence of the Spirit is. And some of us need to be overshadowed by His presence, healed, delivered, freed. Those that are in the bondage to any form of addiction, trapped by depression, oppressed by voices, in your mind, and maybe not just delusional type voices, but voices that speak lies. And maybe it's not just our brain, but by a greater enemy who wants to seek to kill, steal, and destroy. We don't have a gun problem in this country, we have an enemy problem. There is an enemy that is stealing and killing and destroying and I believe oppressing the minds of those that come, become convinced that all they can do is take the lives of others. And so we need to pray, church, that the power and the presence of the Spirit would come to overshadow us again and perhaps on the behalf of those in our community in our midst some of us need to be reminded that we have been delivered in Christ if we are walking with chains it's because we've picked them back up off the floor and are walking with them Paul says in Colossians 1:13 Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved Son. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It has been done. Walk in that freedom. Walk in that victory. Those chains have been broken. Do not carry them. If you've not come to Jesus for His healing, come today. 
they were all healed. And may we be surprised if he says to us, like he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient. No, no, I'm not taking away that thorn, that pain. My grace is sufficient for you. But for those who need to be reminded of their deliverance, be reminded and call out to him again today. For those that need to draw near, you've come into the house, come to the table. You've been invited to a meal to be filled in Christ. Don't just stay in the foyer. Come to the table. Come and receive prayer. Come call out to the Lord. You certainly can call out from your seat to Him. He hears you. But if He's asking you to move, then move. If He's stirring in your heart for that cry of a prayer, more Lord, then call that out. Pray with us more, Lord. Healthy things grow and multiply. The church, our faith, our witness, our service, our love, our joy, our hope, our generosity, and on and on. Healthy things grow and multiply. And I think we like the sound of it, but I'm not sure if we're hungry for it. Are we humble enough to cry out for it? I wrote this prayer. I'll close with this. You can pray it along with me. If it resonates, obviously you need to hear it first, but you can pray it in your heart. And then we'll invite the team and lead into response. Jesus, make us desperate for more of you. We want to know you more fully love you more deeply, worship you more completely, would you overshadow us with your presence even this morning? Amen.